Live. It's America's longest running talk show on computers. It's Computer America, bringing you the biggest names in technology with guest interviews, new products, and your emails. Listen live at ComputerAmerica.com on any device around the world. Email the show at live at ComputerAmerica.com or find us on social media. Be sure to check out our website for contests, giveaways, show notes, live video stream, podcasts, and more. You're listening to Computer America. Hello and welcome into the Computer America Show. We are the nation's longest running, nationally syndicated radio talk show on computers and technology. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Ben Crossman, and I hope all of you are having a fantastic day as we head into another program of you know, the show here. And in the second part of the program, we will be doing computer and technology news where we are going to be covering a wide range of topics, everything from the fact that, well... AMD's sister company, uh, you know, spun off in the late 2000s. They will no longer be focusing on manufacturing next generation chips. So, you know, think of the 7 nanometer, 9 nanometer, uh, 3, 5, whatever. They're not going to be be focusing on that. We'll talk about why that's important, what that indicates. And uh, we have, you know, many, many other stories besides that are... Uh, you know, just as interesting. So that's going to be in the second part of the show. But in the first part, as we usually do, we will have a guest. And that guest today is a company called Voicera. And if you haven't heard of them, well, this is a great show for you to tune into because we're going to hear all about what they do, how they do it, and uh, just everything from, uh, from A to Z. So jo- they'll be joining us in just a moment. But before we do that, a couple of things, including ComputerAmerica.com. That is a very important website because anything that we do here today, be that a link to our guest website or uh, any articles, videos that we show here on the program, anything and everything will be included in the show notes. So it'll be right there on the homepage for the next two weeks or so. You can find it if you uh, listen to this you know, a little bit time shifted. Don't worry, we have you covered. Also, be sure to check out the social media contest brought to you by Logitech. And also be sure to check out the live video stream, which you can also find over at twitch.tv forward slash computer America. We, of course, a radio show and happy to be carried on the IRN radio network. But uh, but hey, you know, we also do video and uh, really enjoy it if you could join us over there. And of course, join us in the chat room. Okay, all those all that being said, let's go ahead, get into our interview for today. So, as I said before, Voicera, if you haven't heard of them, well, Omar Tawakol is here to join us, or here to speak with us, and he is the founder and CEO of the company, and yeah, he's, he's going to hopefully give us a really good rundown. So, uh, Omar, welcome on to Computer America. Hopefully, you're doing well, and uh, yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. So let's go ahead and, as we usually do, start at the beginning. Uh, tell us about uh, a little bit of the background. When was Voicera started and a little bit of yourself? I mean, were you always in tech uh, and, you know, kind of what led you to found Voicera? Oh, great set of questions. So um, we started in January of 2017 uh, and um, basically we wanted to 
uh, build an enterprise voice AI company that would help people become a lot more productive, and we started meetings. And before this, I had run a, a company called Blue Kai that was acquired by Oracle and became the Oracle Data Cloud. So I've been in tech for some time. I'm originally a, a computer scientist until I um, stopped writing code and became a person who, who builds businesses, but uh, a geek at heart. Uh, and I absolutely love what we do. No, and and of course we see that a lot actually. Where uh, you know the the engineers, the coders of the side, they they really you know kind of get their hands dirty and they really make a good product. But then they, I, I, I don't know if this is your case, but we see it often where maybe uh, you know they have trouble conveying or they see people have problems conveying the true value of what they can create or what they can do for their business. So they decide, you know what, I can make the product or I can help design the product and I could, you know, really convey the value of what I do to companies. And that's a, that's a slippery slope to, uh, you know, to starting your own company and being an entrepreneur. <laughs> exactly. I, I was, a long time ago, I, after I had um, kind of run a, uh, an engineering team, I went into product management and then from product management into marketing and from marketing to general management. Um, but uh, uh, being close to the technology makes it easier for you to, to really understand, you know, what people's needs are, how to build it. Uh, it's just a fun and, and fascinating area. Right. So like you said there in the middle, you said that uh, Voicera is about meetings. Talk about exactly what it is that Voicera is offering and, you know, just kind of give us a quick overview of the actual product that you have. We've built Eva, an enterprise voice AI that uh, essentially attends your meetings and really helps you focus on the conversation. A lot of tech that, that comes out there, you know, you go to uh, lunch or dinner and people's faces are planted in Facebook. They're not speaking when they could be speaking. We want to do something essentially the opposite. Let you go into a meeting and really focus on the conversation. Stop opening up your computer to take notes and then noticing Facebook and email messages. Focus on the people. We'll take notes for you. And try to identify what's important in what's being said. Were there actions or decisions uh, that were made after the meeting? Those actions and decisions will be accurately transcribed, sent to you via email or Slack, and maybe even automatically used to update Salesforce. So our whole goal is to make people's meetings very productive, make sure there are outcomes from those meetings. Uh, and that you're, you're moving the business forward. And the reason we chose meetings is meetings are a majority of a lot of people's time, yet it's also, if you do autocomplete on Google on meetings are, it, it basically autocompletes to meetings suck, their time suck, <laughs> <laughs> they're a waste of time. Um, yet we know people have to attend meetings, um, and so we wanted to solve for that, take the one of the biggest pockets of times in the enterprise that are um, kind of disconnected from the workflow and make them productive and connect them to the way you do your work. So you really felt that meetings are unproductive, toxic, whatever, you know, fill in your adjective. You felt that meetings are, you know, uh, really lacking, I guess, you know, um, of course, with the, uh, with the solution that you're providing, meetings themselves are not unproductive. You're not trying to completely do away with the meeting or, you know, kind of be one of those companies, but rather it's making sure that the information is then, you know, whatever is conveyed within the meeting is, you know, disseminated to the right people. It's written down so that the meeting isn't just, you know, wasn't just all talk and no record. I, I mean, what were some of the real pain points that, that Eva, your AI assistant really tries to tackle? Is it just a uh, dictation or is it, you know, kind of help, helping things fall into line after the meeting. Yeah, it's a very rich area. So there's essentially two pillars that we build on. The first one is focus. If you can focus on the conversation and on the people, you you can have a much higher quality conversation. I noticed this. I had the pleasure of working with some of the best CEOs in the industry. And when they were in meetings with me, they were completely focused on the conversation. So we help you focus. Um, and then we make sure that we actually accurately capture what happened. But our thesis, and we think this is proven true, is that people don't attend five hours of meetings to then later want to read five hours of transcripts. Mm -hmm. Who has that kind of time? So people ask for a transcript, but they're really not going to go through and read it. So what we had to do was build technology that tries to identify important moments. If something really looks like an action item, capture it. If there's a next step, capture it. If there's a decision, 
capture it. Uh, that way, when you come out of the meeting, you can at least get a Cliff Notes version of it that highlights the three or four important moments uh, of the meeting, and those can be automatically shared. And if there were other moments you had to look for, like maybe you walked in with a company and the CEO said, hey, I was growing at 300%, and you wanted to remember, did he say 300% a year? Was that 300% a quarter? Um, you you can do that. Right. Uh, and so that that's kind of the, the one half. The other half is really about um, meetings you can't attend. I'm sometimes double or triple booked. Sometimes my team meets with important customers. I wasn't intended to be in the meeting, but I want to know what happened. You don't have to have the fear of missing out anymore. Even can go in your place and capture those moments and give you a Cliff Notes version of it. Right. It really seems like you've tried to build a, kind of like a stenographer for, uh, you know, in AI form. And I really like the way that, uh, you know, I, I guess you're attempting to do the shorthand version, not just the, tra you know, the straight transcript. Uh, my question is, and this is obviously getting into, you know, the artificial intelligence. And don't get me wrong, uh, you know, we've had this conversation with, uh, you know, with a couple other uh, experts and companies here on the program. But AI, in a lot of ways, is used as kind of a catch-all for machine learning, for deep learning, whatever you want to call it. Uh, what elements of AI are you really trying to leverage to make sure that, you know, like you said, not just all the information is captured, but relevant information and, you know, kind of accurate relevant information? Like, how, how, how are you utilizing AI in your product? Yeah, in lots of different ways. I'm going to highlight just a couple right now, mm -hmm. uh, and then I'll go through the rest of them. One of the things that we've recently started focusing on is copying one aspect of the way the brain works. So if you look at um, kind of what's interesting about people is there's a type of person who can run really fast and do certain things really fluid and easy, and that same person at a different time can sit down and play chess. But they're very different systems. The systems of the brain that's able to scan the environment continually and effortlessly is a, is a different system than is than the one that does very deep and conscious processing. And um, we wanted to leverage that you know two system approach to our AI. And so what we did is we built a single system that does kind of transcription in real time of what you're saying. So if I'm in a meeting and Eva's there, Eva will put on the screen kind of like real-time transcription of what, what's being said, like mm -hmm. closed captioning. Um, and that is as good as any uh, other transcription in the industry, and in our opinion, not good enough. Because if you're going to update a system like Salesforce or workflow system, you can't have those kind of larger errors uh, in the transcript. So what we did is we built yet another system that tries to identify when something seems important. And when it knows that something's important, it then goes in the more kind of deliberate mode of very deep processing, uh, a bit more expensive, uh, a lot more computational heft, and we raise the accuracy a considerable amount so that then we'd be more confident in the output and we can, we can put in the system. So that's essentially multiple um, parallel ASR engines, uh, mm -hmm. automatic speech recognition engines, right. built under different algorithmic regimes, sometimes trained under different types of data, um, all collaborate under this uh, higher level ensemble that takes the outputs from them. And the ensemble is itself a deep learning engine that uh, takes the outputs from each of the ASRs and figures out how to get a higher accuracy answer. So that's one aspect of the, the, the AI. Embedded in that is, you know, I was saying we, we determine what's important when you're speaking in real time. There's a couple of different subsystems uh, there. One of them does basic keyword spotting so that uh, if you give a command or if you, you know, for, for instance, if you're saying, okay, Eva, remind me to send a, a copy of the presentation to Ben at 7 p.m. tomorrow, it would figure that out and put that on my calendar. Um, or if you were to say, hey, we're about to go on a radio show and here's the agenda, it would say, hmm, you're talking about agenda, that must be important. Um, so there's a system that kind of looks at the text and determines um, what's important. That's separate than the ASR uh, engine. It's also separate than post-meeting analysis, which does kind of uh, natural language processing and tries to do natural language understanding to identify moments in the meeting that seem like emotional moments or motion, moments of contention or, um, uh, or promises that were made uh, and so on. So there's a lot of different AI subsystems 
uh, involved here, and each of them are, are built under you know with, with with very different needs. Right, and of, of course, none of them sound uh, you know completely uh, impossible, and I, I definitely do like that. But one thing that I well, I, actually, a couple things that I should you know kind of clarify for myself, and of course the audience. Uh, one of them is Ava Voicera. What exactly physical form does this take? Is this a smartphone app? Is this uh, you know kind of like a dedicated teleconference uh, unit that we see in in office rooms? Uh, what? How does one kind of use Voicera physically? You know, we wanted to create something that was ubiquitous across audio environments. It wasn't tied to any particular platform. So um, what that means in practicality is Eva comes um, basically from the cloud, uh, has access to your calendar if you if you OAuth that and you allow it. Mm-hmm. Eva will read your calendar and look for any dial-in or conference web link. And if it sees that, it will come in as a participant into like a WebEx meeting or a Skype meeting or Zoom or BlueJeans or, you know, one of the, any of those popular folks. And if you don't have a WebEx link, or I'm, I'm sorry, a web link, and you just have a phone number, Eva can just dial in like a participant in a regular phone number. So Eva's kind of in the cloud. Um, we also have an app version, which is kind of on the iPhone and Android. It's a really simple, skinny app. You just open it and, it, and you press a button and you can have an instant uh, personal meeting. Or you can use the app as kind of like a remote control, meaning it, it might be participating in a conference meeting, but you can open up your app and see what's going on um, with the app. You can also add Eva as a phone participant. So if I call you, I can add Eva, like I add a person, mm-hmm. uh, and then it'll just be over phone line. So kind of designed it to be ubiquitous across sound environments, allow for one-on-ones, phone calls, and and, um, uh, and conference meetings. Makes a lot of sense. And then the other part was, uh, you know, kind of all this uh, stuff that's stored in the cloud. And I think that a lot of, you know, d- there, there are many, many different uh, email scheduling, uh, meeting, and of course, email clients, things like that. Uh, was it a priority to maybe make your own, you know, kind of calendar, uh, you know, system, or do you integrate with uh, with other, you know, kind of meeting calendar email uh, services out there? Yeah, we tried to to fit in. Um, the first simplest thing that we did is if you have an account and you invite Eva as a participant then um, doesn't matter what calendar uh, we're using because it's kind of standard standard protocols on that. Eva right. will just uh, show up as a calendar, uh, as a participant to the meeting. So there's no kind of requirement on what type of calendaring system you use. Now, when it came to OAuth, when we basically say, hey, that you could just invite Eva to any meeting, um, that we handle pretty much any system. But we took it a little bit further and said, well, if we know your Google or your Microsoft or your Outlook, um, and you are willing to give us OAuth access to Eva, Eva will then will read your calendar and figure out how to get into those meetings automatically without you having to actually remember to invite Eva meeting by meeting. That requires uh, a little bit more kind of higher level integration, and that's why we started with kind of the market leaders there with, uh, with Outlook and Google. So this may be a little bit of a higher-minded question, but I have to ask you because, uh, you know, I- I think people are just finally getting to the point where digital assistants, they aren't just gimmicks. They are actual things that can make people's lives easier, simpler, you know, that the, the ultimate goal of being able to talk naturally, uh, you know, very fluidly with, uh, you know, with computers, that is something that's just now starting to come up. And obviously you're, you're making great strides in doing that yourself. But digital assistants in general, obviously people are using them in their everyday lives. Uh, why did you feel the need to create, you know, maybe Eva instead of maybe, you know, uh, making a skill for, let's say, Alexa or Google Home? And just in general, I mean, digital assistants, why, you know, I guess, why kind of go with this as opposed to just an app that, you know, didn't need a name or a face or anything like that? Great question. If you look at the enterprise, it's an entirely different business than the kind of the consumer footprint of a of a Siri or uh, an Alexa or Google Home. One, enterprises need to own their data end to end. They don't want to like basically say, hey, it's out there in a consumer pool that you use for consumers. It's much more like Outlook than Gmail. So Outlook uh, processes your email, but it's completely 
uh, owned by you, the company, mm -hmm. and uh, writes uh, only um, are for Outlook as a processor of the data, but you can't read through the emails and produce ads that match them or anything like that. So the enterprise space is different than consumer. That's number one. Number two is that when you look at a meeting, we found that people didn't want to um, spend too much time giving commands to a system. They wanted a participant that heard um, the speech between you know five or six different people who are speaking and identified important moments. So it became a very different style of AI. It wasn't you know walking into room and asking for someone to turn on something to turn on the lights. It was me speaking to five people. Sometimes we were speaking over each other and the systems there identifying those moments that are important enough and then doing something very different to raise the quality of the transcript to make it good enough to go into um, a system like Salesforce or pushed out via Slack. So that needed custom built technology that wasn't trying to solve the generic, hey, let me speak to an assistant problem. Mm -hmm. It's how do I go into an enterprise setting, meeting all the privacy and security and data ownership needs of an enterprise, and then looking at long form content, identifying what's important, then figuring out how to integrate into an enterprise system. So the similarity with Alexa and Cortana and, the, and those systems really stops at the okay, Eva, you know, um, remind me to send this, that, that is similar. Everything after that is quite dissimilar because of, uh, because of kind of the enterprise needs I outlined. So talk about, you, you mentioned a couple times there, which I really like. I always, I always enjoy asking, uh, you know, because I think over the past couple of years, it's become more and more of a mainstream question. You mentioned security, privacy, that kind of thing. Obviously, if you're taking full uh, full transcripts, which you can, you know, email and voice recordings, that's one thing. Uh, highlights makes it very simple for I don't know corporate espionage or just in general people who shouldn't be having access to these meetings. Uh, you know, kind of gives them access to it. What security measures did you take? Uh, you know, because obviously. Uh, I think things stored on other people's computers and, you know, they can take their own security measures, but sometimes we see breakdowns in, you know, maybe the company's own servers that they own, you know, they, they don't have a password on them or something, you know, simple like that. Uh, what kind of security measures do you take to make sure that only the people who are invited or, you know, given privilege are the ones who are, you know, kind of given the information? Yeah, lots of lots of subtopics to unpack there. Uh, let's start with the, with the first one. We we once had a, a sales team come to us and say, "Hey, we do these customer calls. Uh, could we um, not let them know that Eva's there?" <laughs> we're like, we're kind, of, we're kind of the opposite of that. You know, we're we're not we're not meant to be a tool used by Michael, Michael Cohen or Omarosa. That's not <laughs> our goal. Right. Um, what happens when you're in a meeting with Eva, uh, first off is Eva makes an announcement at the beginning of the call saying, I'm here to uh, take notes and record. Um, an email will be sent out in advance of the meeting if Eva's invited the meeting, letting the other know, people know that Eva will be there. When you go into the meeting, um, uh, most of our conference providers now, uh, as we've you know ramped up our integrations, um, we have a webcam presence so that you can see in the, you know just like you'd see my video, like in a, in a little box, you'd see a video for, for, for Eva, so you, you know it's there after the meeting, you get, you get an email. Um, and in addition to that, we did something that's really kind of uh, frankly weird. Um, we basically said that anybody who is in the meeting who is on the calendar has the rights to go into the meeting object uh, and delete the meeting recording for everybody. Hmm. So that if you felt uncomfortable that somehow you came in and you, 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 you kind of missed the announcement or someone told you, but you were embarrassed to say that you were uncomfortable, you, you, you could delete it. So we tried to take the maximally um, protective stance for the participants of the meeting and nobody else should have access to it unless the participants of the meeting add people uh, to the meeting object when they do, everybody knows about it and it's transparent. Because we're a bottoms up tool. We're trying to do something to make you, the participant meeting, more productive and, uh, uh, and happy about the outcome of the meeting. We're not trying to do something for the parent company as a top-down mandate. Hey, people, I'm going to record your meetings and I'm having access to it. Right. It's starting with the individual participant as the ones who really own the meeting objects and control who sees it um, and the privacy settings and the, the ability to delete and so on. So that's kind of, the, um, kind of our philosophy and how we approached it.
Yeah, so obviously a lot of transparency that you are trying to provide there for the people who will be the end users because I guess in a lot of situations, and I didn't really think of this, in a lot of situations, the end users are probably not even people who have signed up, made an account with you, or you know signed up to use Voicera, but rather a lot of the end users will be, you know, one person will be utilizing Voicera, and then maybe a stream of customers will then be, uh, I, I guess, kind of subject to your product. So I guess a lot of announcements, having the ability to control the data and what's collected, that's, uh, I... I and again, just you know, kind of thinking after the fact seems key to what you're trying to do here. Absolutely, you got to build confidence and trust, and so that's why we took this bottoms-up approach. And we're not like we we didn't invent this uh, this concept. The whole idea of consumerized B2B stuff like Slack and and Dropbox and and, and Yammer mm-hmm. really came up with this idea that hey, if we're going to build B2B software, why don't we make it consumer-like that it's good enough that people really want to use it themselves and they didn't have to wait till their parent company mandating it to them. And then once you notice that a lot of people within that company are using the product, then you kind of work with IT and you work with other business groups to get them to adopt it at a broader scale to start taking ownership of, you know, how the enterprise wants to enforce its its kind of rights on security, whether there's, you know, two-factor authentication or there's, you know, some other set of mandates from the company. Um, they can start doing that but you, you don't bank on the enterprise top-down dictating usage. You bank on the fact that you're making something good enough that each individual will want to use it. And frankly, that's a journey. Like We're, we're nowhere near done. Every, right. every few weeks or month at least, I'll look back and be a little bit embarrassed at, at wow, we should have done that sooner. <laughs> Yeah, and, and trust me, uh, you know, just working with Computer America here, and even even little things where you're like, oh, let me just align that logo a little bit, and you're like, I can't believe it was like that for six months. I feel so bad, but <laughs> no, no, no. The product that you have, it looks great, and really, it sounds like it, it can certainly do a lot. Uh, talk about your use cases. Uh, who would, I guess, best utilize something like Ava, uh, something you know, like Forcera? Uh, is this strictly sales? Is this uh, also maybe you know trying to have those big corporate meetings that you're trying to really hammer out roadmaps? Uh, what parties do you really see utilizing your product? Yeah, so we, if you step back and said who utilizes WebEx and Zoom and Blue Jeans, um, very much our customers. Somebody who has a lot of meetings are the ones who utilize us the most. Specifically, we see very different use cases. Some people are in sales and or in customer success and they meet a lot of customers and they really wanna focus on the conversation. Eva will help them take the notes and then as they leave the meeting, it, Eva can automatically update Salesforce. And then when they go back uh, to the company and they want help from their team to close the deal, they can basically, you know, push a highlight out to their like product team and say, hey, listen to what they're asking for here, because I think we need that feature. And they're leveraging the voice of the customer rather than than the product team hearing the salesperson say, yeah, yeah, yeah just close the deal with, with what you have. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's right. The customer was asking for this. And so, 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 so this way the sales force can really use the voice of the customer to, to get more done. Uh, so those are the sales folks. We see a bunch of project management um, folks in the company use it. We see lots of smaller companies where people are kind of um, where everybody in the company is serving customers um, tend to use it. We see staff meetings. Uh, we tend to see some interviews where you're doing candidate interviews and you want to be able to share just key moments for, with when, when you're making the decision. Um, uh, so there's a there's a pretty broad set of uses of these. There are some people use them for phone calls, so they add them to the phone call as opposed to using a conferencing system. Right. Um, and some people use them for one-on-ones. So it 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 just is is a broad set of corporate use cases, small to medium to large companies, uh, particularly for people who have lots of meetings. Makes perfect sense. So we have like two minutes here, and I want you to look into the future, look at your product. You said that you were changing it, obviously on a very active basis. But I guess just AI in the workplace or digital assistants, uh, in particular, as it relates to AI and what you're doing. Uh, as well, where do you see your product eventually ending up? Like, are you going to be, uh, and, and, and by you, I mean Voicera, is Voicera going to be, I guess, kind of that omnipresent, uh, I guess, Jarvis kind of uh, office assistant? Or where do you see all this heading with your product? 
Yeah, we definitely look at um, being in meetings across all sorts of audio environments, uh, phone calls, uh, stuff like that. We also be, you know, are talking to a whole bunch of conferencing systems um, and device manufacturers and integrating EVA to cover more and more of your experiences of work. The real kind of expansion I see happening now is going from individual use usage to like more team usage. So everybody in the team would, would have an account. Um, we'd automatically start to provision certain types of meetings into kind of like a team channel. Uh, and so that you can now search across uh, your, your own individual meetings and your team meetings. Um, so that transition from, you know, individual use to like team use is one of the big um, changes we're seeing. Uh, the other one that we're preparing for is a lot of people want to be able to build their own, you know, integrations and skills on top of the um, kind of EVA capability set. So opening up our APIs more so this can become not not just more ubiquitous in terms of showing up in more circumstances and devices, but also output the results of the meetings into more workflows. Like right, right now, we automatically push to Salesforce, but we should be pushing into all the CRM systems, into Trello and all the task management well, systems. And, and, and Omar, I'm going to stop you there. We're just flat out of time, but I want to say very interesting conversation. If people want to find out more, we're going to tell them to go over to voiceera.com. And Omar, I'm going to say this now. Thanks for coming on Computer America. Very interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Loved it. All have right. A have day. a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks. Everyone, we'll be right back. More Computer America right after this. Greece is cheap. But the airfare costs a fortune. Paris? Not much closer. And again, airfare. What about Puerto Vallarta? Let's face it. Flying anywhere is just too expensive. Wait, what's this? low-cost airlines with one call to low-cost airlines you'll drastically slash your travel costs we're talking insanely low airline prices to any of your favorite destinations where would you like to go london rome costa rica australia wow that's cheap so why wait call now to learn how crazy cheap it is to fly anywhere in the u.s or international our prices are so low we can't publish them the only way to get them is to call to instantly hear the most amazing best deals on airline travel. It's that easy. So call now and start packing. 800-215-4461. 800-215-4461. 800-215-4461. That's 800-215-4461. We are all Brother Wolf. Ten years ago, a group of locals banded together to create positive change. We took animals into our homes, held adoption events at local retailers, and talked to the community about our mission to help build a no-kill Asheville. A decade later, we have achieved so many victories for animals in need. There's been so much progress, yet there's still so much to do. As part of our year-long celebration, we encourage you to become a member of our special Compassionate Circle program. With a monthly donation of $10 or more, you will have behind-the-scenes access to the work we are doing at Brother Wolf. Our goal is to reach 1,000 members because we receive no government funding. Working together, we can help build and sustain no-kill communities. Learn more at CompassionateCircle.BWAR.org. We are a 501c3 tax-deductible organization. And welcome back to the Computer America Show. It is 32 minutes past the hour, and we are, hey, we're going to move into computer and technology news in just a moment. But if you miss any part of today's program, feel free to check us out wherever podcasts are heard, and Computer America should be right there waiting for you. Of course, hey, you know, I've just finished talking with Voicera, and it was a lot of fun talking to Voicera's founder and CEO, Omar Tawakal, as we talked all about what they do, how they do it, how they are leveraging uh, AI and, of course, uh, digital assistants to really, hey, make meetings more productive. So again, if you miss any part of that, computeramerica.com, there's also a section for podcasts right there at the top, and you can go there to find it. But thank you for continuing on with us. And if you're just joining us here on Computer America, welcome into the program. So we are going to go ahead, switch gears over to computer and technology news, where we have a couple very important articles and uh, goings on to talk about. So let's go ahead and get started. Computer America and, of course, computer and technology news. Here we go. 
let's choose oh so many here i really wanted to get to let's go ahead and talk about this one so amd they are no stranger been on the show a number of times but also well hey it's not unusual for amd to uh you know make big announcements that they're working on the next generation chip or they're working on the next generation of graphics card cpu what have you what is unusual is for the sister company and we're going to get into just how global foundries they were a spin-off of amd back in 2009 according to this article but yeah global foundries who makes all of their chips for their graphics cards and cpus i think in particular we're, we're going to be talking about their cpus but uh but obviously it's going to affect both they have announced that they will no longer make next gen chips and they said that quote it's too expensive for globe global foundries to keep up with samsung and tsmc so if you've never heard of TSMC, they're also up there with Samsung in terms of making the uh, these smaller chips that in a lot of cases go into, uh, let's see, Samsung is big on uh, on like mobile phones and mobile processors and things like that. But at the same time, they also make these next generation chips that are on smaller dies. And we're going to talk about the importance of the seven nanometer processor or the five or the three. But let's go ahead and get started. So this one coming to us from Engadget, Mr. Steve Dent, and Global Foundries, as we said, they uh, which manufactures AMD's current Ryzen and Radeon chips, has surprisingly announced that it will stop all development work on the next-gen 7 nanometer processor. And furthermore, it has no plans to develop the future 5 and 3 technology either. So 7 is out the window. 7 was going to be the next uh, generation chip because currently we are on uh, between 10 and 14 nanometer. If you, um, I think that a couple of maybe Samsung's processors are 10 nanometer, but we're on 10, 12, 14. Intel has been stuck famously for a while now on the 12 nanometer architecture or maybe 14. I think it's 14 uh, nanometer. And they've been stuck famously on the 14 nanometer it appears that the other competitor in the field, because I think a lot of people when it comes to processors think of Intel and AMD, uh, yeah, they're kind of taking away the emphasis on the need to shrink the die anymore. So they said that, uh, let's see, let's see, let's see, let's see. So yeah, let's go ahead and go with this article and then we'll, you know, kind of patch it up with any knowledge that, you know, kind of we feel you need. But they said that instead they will stick to the current generation 12, 14 nanometer processor and expand product offerings around that technology. At the same time, AMD confirmed that it will be manufacturing future 7 nanometer products, including the Zen 2 CPUs and, Na and Navi GPUs with TSMC. So essentially they're going to be leasing renting uh buying the technology from tsmc instead of doing it in-house those crucial future products will help it at least stay even with the rival intel and possibly leapfrog its 10 nanometer chips amd has already said it would build them with the uh with tsmc which came as a bit of a surprise with the industry at the time so it now makes perfect sense with the announcement from Global Foundries. Obviously, developing these things, you can ask Intel or really any of these companies, if you are looking to manufacture your own 7 nanometer or even 10 nanometer, and you know nanometers, like if you want to hold up your fingers and kind of gauge how small a nanometer is, uh, yeah, just kind of push them together because it's super, super small. And the ability to fit all these transistors and all this you know circuitry onto these you know actual chips and processors it's something that multi-billion dollar companies are really struggling with so i can see where amd and by extension global foundries kind of looked at and said look the 12 the 14 pro the 12 and 14 nanometer process that's a that's a figured out technology we know how to do that and we know how to do it well we can make money on this without pouring gobs and gobs of research and, and development funds uh let's focus on what we know how to do 
and then we'll outsource what we don't know how to do. And I think that's where we're currently sitting. They said that uh, Malta will remain a large part of, of our volume and Malta being global foundries. Uh, last year, uh, I'm sorry, last year, <coughs> excuse me, last year, Global Foundry said that its seven nanometer LP chips would arrive in 2018 and chips made using bleeding edge ult- extreme ultraviolet by 2019. So that's an, another technology they were hyping up. Well, however, moving to 7 nanometer LP lithography is a big jump from the current 14 to 12 nanometer process. And check this out. Here's what I'm talking about. Not a lot of companies have room to throw this around, but they said that it would have cost the company $10 billion plus. So over $10 billion for a single fabrication line. If you want to talk about prohibitively expensive, $10 billion will eventually have to be recouped from that one process line. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure once they have it figured out and they can replicate it, uh, you know, the price of subsequent fabrication lines go down, but it's still not going to be, you know, kind of zero. It's going to be very, very expensive. So they said that the investor behind Global Foundries uh, is apparently not inclined to spend that kind of cash on a company that has never made a profit. Ouch, a little bit of harsh reality there, but what are you going to do? Lifting the burden of investing at the leading e- at the leading edge will allow global foundries to make more targeted investments in technologies rather than uh, really matter to majority of chip design in fast-growing markets such as RF, IoT, 5G, industry, and automotive. So the real story here is AMD and, well, actually Global Foundries, which is a you know, part of AMD, the investor behind Global Foundries finally said, enough is enough. I'm not going to spend the money to get you guys to the next hurdle. Start making some money in the here and now, and then we'll talk about what to do in the future. And then that kind of in the future part, that is where... Uh, that's where they're outsourcing of TSMC and of course Samsung is going to play a bigger role. Now, one thing here that they didn't highlight, which is why any of this matters. The idea to go from a 14 to 12 to 10 to seven to five to three, all these nanometer dies as they call them, they really matter because the smaller die that you're able to fit the same number of, of, processors onto well i guess you know each one is a processor but anyways when you're able to shrink these things down even a little bit that means that you are using less electricity things become more efficient they generate less heat and they become well i don't want to say that they become faster but they're just as fast and i guess in some cases they actually do become faster because you're you know you're not constrained by the uh by the power draw and by the heat that is put off of them so the smaller and smaller you're able to make these things, the more refined you're able to make the process, the better off you're going to be. If a company magically just kind of waved a magic wand and said, hey, look, we have a three nanometer processor, every smartphone, every laptop, every tablet, every uh, every watch, every car, every single company in the industry that has to give any kind of hoots towards uh, battery life or uh, speed and efficiency, they would be all over that. So the race to the next the next gen chip, whoever makes it there first and whoever makes a really quality product at a decent price, they're going to benefit substantially from all of these manufacturers. And I, hey, you know, the Internet of Things, not just what I said before, but also, you know, any other product you can think of, they're all going to benefit from a smaller processor. So AMD, Ryzen, Radeon, looks like in their product in their product uh, roadmap, they're still going to have these things. And in some cases, it still seems like they're going to skip the 10 nanometer and jump right to the 7, which is great. As I said before, smaller is better. But, um, yeah, they won't be made in-house at AMD, but rather they will be made using TSMC or 
in other cases, Samsung. That's going to hurt into uh, AMD's bottom line. Might make them a little bit less cost competitive because obviously, if you have to pay someone else to do half of the work for you, then you're going to be paying a lot. But it means that the dream is not dead. Simply some reorganization, and hey, investors will be investors. They're going to do what they feel is best for their bottom line. Tech be darned. So there you have it. There's that one. Let's uh, let's go ahead and switch gears. So we have a number of stories here. We can talk about. Ooh, let's talk about this one. So this is one of those weird stories that you really don't know how to categorize, but it caught my eye because hacking hacking takes a lot of forms. And there's things such as social engineering, which can be as simple as going onto a person's Facebook page, finding their mother, who is a friend of them on Facebook, and suddenly you know their mother's maiden name. That is social engineering. It can be very simple and very effective. And then there are others that uh, you know, we, we recently saw, which I'm sure we'll talk about tomorrow with our security expert. But the threat of actually using, uh, you know, tantalizing evidence as in, hey, we caught your webcam, uh, we recorded using your webcam, catching you do something that was very private, and we will release the video to everyone in your address book. Uh, you know, simple things like that uh, are also a form of hacking. And, you know, hey, blackmail is still hacking to an extent. Well, looks like there's another one, and this one caught my eye. So this one was by Motherboard and by Joseph Cox, talking about scammers threatened to review Bahama Travel Company unless, uh, well, actually, here we go, uh, review bomb a travel company unless it pays ransom. So uh, obviously, fake reviews, reviews that look poorly, and you know, to I guess someone. Someone who's just, you know, quickly looking up a restaurant, if you're, you know, if you're going to Google a restaurant to see what the reviews are, and you quickly see that they have a half-star review, well, you might decide not to go there, and it becomes a real problem for, uh, you know, for the customer base. Online reviews matter, and I guess scammers are starting to know that, or at least take note of that. So, this one coming out today, and they're saying that cyber criminals try to extort cash from victims in all sorts of ways. But for a lot of businesses, reputation is everything. One company says a group is is attempting to extort it with the threat of spreading a wave of fake negative reviews and complaints across Instagram and Twitter, saying that, quote, we are experts in destroying personal or company reputation online, the group calling itself the STD company, wrote to its target, saying that uh, the target is Cheap Air, a flight price comparison website. So they said that, quote, once we complete our job, even if your site remains on Google, you can be sure that all first page, uh, that all first page would be full of negative results about your company. And yeah, that's not really what you want to hear. You don't want to see that the first thing that you Google about a company be, uh, you know, just horrible, horrible things that even aren't true. Uh, Businesses, media outlets, and any number of other organizations and individuals are often concerned with their Google search results. And that's why search engine optimization, which is the tactic of getting companies and individuals to, if you Google, let's say you Google Computer America, SEO would try its darndest to make sure that, or not even Computer America, SEO would be is uh, would try darndest to say if you look up tech podcast or tech radio show, one of those two, SEO would be the attempt to manipulate the system in kind of uh, legitimate ways to make sure that Computer America is highly ranked when someone Google's tech radio show or technology radio show. So that kind of thing, but it can also be work the other way. It seems that's what they're trying to, uh, you know, that's what they're trying to extort here. And the article continues saying that, uh, but of course, search engines, social media, and review sites can be polluted and gamed. 
where there's an example in June where the Red Hen, a restaurant that asked a White House secretary to leave, and of course, after that, Red Hens that were not even associated with the business that did that, and although, of course, including the business itself, were flooded with reviews of the restaurant of people who have never been there, never eaten there, in all regards would be a completely useless review. Suddenly, those became the most important review because there were hundreds, if not thousands of them. So they said that, uh, let's see, we're continuing on here. In Cheap Air's case, the apparent extortion email says that they plan to create thousands of negative reviews on Trustpilot and Ripoff Report, and they threatened to leave thousands of negative posts and replies on Cheap Air's social media accounts, saying that we're definitely not going to pay these cyber thugs, but we still have to devote a lot of time and resources to combat it, which is unfortunate to, uh, you know, to kind of see. So... Yeah, and you know they even give an example here where they have a screenshot of a tweet. Uh, the tweet reads, "Cheap air is a total fraud. I have lost fourteen forty fourteen hundred dollars." And they ignore my emails. People stay away from at Cheap Air, and then obviously you see Cheap Air there uh, trying to get in contact with the person, but will obviously, you know, never hear a response because it's a completely fake account. I think we're going to stop that there, but just know that this is not something uh, unique, new. In fact, there's another article we might get to talking in regards to, you know what, let's actually go ahead and skip over, let's see, uh, I think that article is right here. So in the same nature as that article, This one coming to us from TechCrunch, but Twitter suspends more accounts for engaging in coordinated manipulation. So they said that last week they banned 284 accounts in engaging in in coordinated manipulation, and today they have kicked off an additional 500 accounts off the platform, which now bring it up to 800 accounts. Even if these aren't fake accounts, they are now banning, Twitter is now banning accounts for manipulating massive amounts of accounts. So if you wanted to grab you and your closest 400 friends and let's say review bomb a travel service, that's where Twitter would come in and start banning. I just wanted to connect these two stories to really show that it's a problem. Twitter knows it's a problem. Companies who are having to deal with the extortion know it's a problem. And I guess it's our job here at Computer America to let consumers know that not everything you see online, I know that it's a very knee-jerk reaction to see a company or any kind of online, and and yeah, actually, you know, uh, one of our chatters just said 800 out of millions, uh, very true. And I think even to that point, they've deleted a number of bots. I think what makes this 800 accounts kind of really stand out from a lot of the other massive ban waves where they've banned you know, tens of thousands of accounts at a time. What makes this stand out is the fact that they were most likely real accounts. It's just that they were coordinating with one another to, you know, either, uh, you know, either smear someone or to, uh, as they say here, share divisive commentary or many other frowned upon practices So it could be 284 real people that they just banned, but it's 284 people who were engaging, again, in coordinated manipulation. I wanted to connect these two because, again, Computer America is here to let you know, the listener, the consumer, that not everything you see online, even if it's a very satisfying uh, public takedown of, of a company, not all those can be trusted. And unfortunately, the way that the internet works, they can go viral. Just be sure to take it with a grain of salt. Because, hey, some people stand to make a lot of money if they are to be believed when it comes to that kind of thing. So, let's see. After years of accusation that it doesn't enforce its own policies about bullying, bots, and other abuses, Twitter has taken a much harder line on problematic accounts in the past few months. And despite stalling user growth, especially in the United States, Twitter has been aggressively suspending accounts, including one 
that were created by users to evade prior suspicions. I'll be honest, Twitter, if you're listening, if your platform is ever going to continue to grow, it's going to have to be because people, ha people have to trust that what they read on Twitter, be it, uh, you know, be it posts by individuals or by trending topics, that those are actually the voice of a massive number of people and not just a single handful of users who have access to millions of fake accounts. That's what's been happening in the past, and that, I think, has driven a lot of people away from Twitter because they understand that if you're looking to become famous, if you're looking to game the system for any kind of notoriety on, on the Twitter platform, there are ways to do that, and there are ways to pay for it, and it doesn't cost that much money because it is rampant and prolific. So if you are looking to... Um, I don't know. If Twitter's hoping to grow, again, I hope that they really do continue to take a hard line stance on what happens on their platform. They said that whatever its impact on user numbers, Twitter anti-abuse measures may help it save face during a Senate Intelligence Committee coming on September 5th. Executives from Twitter, Facebook, and Google are expected to be grilled by Senator Mark Warren and other politicians about their platform and uh, by other countries to influence U.S. politics. And you can be sure Twitter is definitely one of them. There you have it. Those two stories. Really wanted to get those two in. I think we have time for just one more story. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Why don't we go ahead and talk about Mozilla? Great organization, great product, Mozilla Firefox, if you've never heard of it, where have you been all of Mozilla's life? One thing that they're now doing, and they're doing very publicly, is releasing user data. And not that it can be traced to any one individual, and I don't believe that they're actually tracking, uh, you know, kind of what sites you go to and, and things like that, but they have released something called the Public Data Report, that is to be used for public use as well as researchers who could really benefit from having this kind of data and not having to help pay for it. In 2016, and this coming to us from Engadget, in 2016, Mozilla launched its hardware report, which shares information about what type of hardware Firefox clients are using. And now the company is introducing its public data report where based on non-sensitive data collected from Firefox desktop browsers, a telemetry system, the new report shows information on how people around the world are using Firefox and the internet. So, similar to, let's see, and uh, yeah, and they said that uh, similar to hardware report for developers, we hope that the report can be a resource for journalists, researchers, and public I'm sorry, and the public for understanding not only the state of the browse, of the desktop browsing, but also how data is used at Mozilla. We try to be open by design and users should know how data is collected, what data is collected, and how that data is used. Obviously, if Mozilla is angling itself to be kind of the anti-Chrome, if you don't know about Chrome, then you don't know about Google. Google collects everything from Google Chrome. Uh, it collects your hardware report, it collects where you go, uh, how often you visit, what time you visit, uh, what ads you see. Google Chrome is a massive data vacuum for Google, who's already a massive data vacuum. Just another facet. Mozilla went back, I think they went back to being non, uh, you know, not-for-profit, uh, private organization kind of deal. They are hoping to be the anti-Chrome. That's really that's really what it feels like. So the report breaks down ten different metrics by either worldwide data or stats from the top ten countries. You can see information on the number of yearly and monthly active Firefox desktop users, average daily use, how many users are running the latest version of the browser, 
top language settings and how many people are using tracking protection at the uh, and the top add-ons for Mozilla. They note that, uh, that the sort of data to track crash rates, answer specific product questions, and measure the impact of its experiments, and all that, of course, well, hey, you are more than welcome to draw your own conclusions from the data report that Mozilla has put out. The music means that we are just about done here, and I want to thank everyone out there who is listening either uh, live or listening to us time-shifted, and of course, those who are joining us in the chat room. Everyone in between and near and far, thank you so much for tuning into Computer America. And hey, thanks again to Voice Sarah for coming on the program and making that a really great interview. Tomorrow on the program, we should be talking to the one, the only, our cybersecurity expert, uh, and uh, yeah, our cybersecurity expert, Mr. Scott Schober, who is the author of Hacked Again and runs his own, uh, hey, you know, cybersecurity and just security uh, company. If you've never heard of it, it's a, it's a great segment. Definitely tune in tomorrow. And until next time, everyone have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning in. And catch us 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, Eastern. Have a great day. Catch you next time. Bye, everyone.